Hello, I'm Pete Peterson, and this is episode 38 of the Rabbit Room Podcast. Hutchmoot 2012 included our first ever session involving the art of theater. To lead the discussion, we invited in Wes Driver and Greg Green, who are the creative team behind Nashville's Blackbird Theater Company, as well as Stephen Trafton, a Broadway actor who has played lead roles in shows like Les Mis and The Phantom of the Opera. This is their session entitled The Theology of Theater. Well, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Um, my name is Greg Green. I'm joined by Wes Driver and Stephen Trafton. I'll let them introduce themselves. Uh, I just wanted to mention that um, uh, Wes and I uh, are the founders and, and managing director, artistic director of Blackbird Theater here in Nashville. We've been in Nashville since the uh, late, eight, late uh, 80s, early 90s for you. I'm a little older than Wes. Um, and uh, kind of went to Lipscomb University, stuck around here. Uh, we might uh, might let Wes talk a little bit more about what Blackbird Theater is. And Stephen, you want to tell us about your... Sure. Um, I'm from Kentucky, not far from here, Bowling Green, Kentucky. Um, I went to Baldwin-Wallace College in uh, Music Theater, um, which is in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, out of school I did um, uh, two years in the Broadway revival of Les Miserables, and I did two years on the national tour of Phantom of the Opera. And currently I work with um, a theater company called Fellowship for the Performing Arts in New York City. And uh, we're the producers of the Screwtape Letters that tours around the country. Uh, and I'm also helping kind of launch um, a, a lot of new projects. My wife and I, uh, Juliet, just did a, um, uh, a reading of G.K. Chesterton's Magic, which Blackbird actually did uh, a year ago. Um, and. Uh, so, and I also um, tour on the weekends with uh, a show that I put together called Encountering Philippians, uh, which I'm going to be doing at their church uh, tomorrow night. And, uh, yeah, that's a little bit yeah. about me. And if, if you haven't seen the touring production of Screwtape Letters with Max McLean, it is, it is really uh, uh, phenomenal. Mm -hmm. uh, it's surprising them just to the amount of... Um, just the, the, the force and the, the enthralling nature of the show, that, you know, one man and, and an assistant, and and of course the material screw tape letters is terrific. Um, yes, and my church is Woodmont Hills Church, which is right across Franklin Road from here. And Stephen will be doing Encountering Philippians, which also is a remarkable uh, work. Um, and maybe we'll have a chance at the end to talk about that. So what we want to do in this uh, little session, we've got uh, an hour and a half. We'll we will basically um, talk about three subjects, and and uh, I'll bounce some questions between Wes and Stephen. All on um, theater and theology, and where, what's the what's the um, intersection between theater and church and kingdom, um, and why is theater suited for, or is it suited for, uh, uh, you know, being used for the purposes of the kingdom? Um, so we'll we'll just do a lot of talking, and then we'll have um, thirty minutes at the end for just open discussion questions and stuff. I think you'll have a lot of really good questions, especially for Stephen, because his his background is I think just fascinating. Also, I tend to pontificate, so if I pontificate too much, you can fold a piece of paper up and do this, and I'll know I need to get down off the the golden dais and uh, let the other guys talk a little bit. Okay, so uh, yeah, we want to talk about first. Um, um, I'll talk about what is theater. Uh, Wes is going to hit some subjects, especially around theater as, uh, as incarnation. And then um, Stephen will talk about uh, the theology of a, of a life in theater. Um, I was at, at Lipscomb. I was uh, about to turn 20, and I decided I was going to celebrate turning 20 
uh, with a special, something special, some kind of special event. I decided I was going to go to the Tennessee Performing Arts Center, the big theater space in town, and see that show that everyone was talking about. Now, I, I tried to get a, a date to go with me. I couldn't. So I called TPAC and I said, I just need one ticket to that big show that everyone was talking about. And I went down there. I picked up my ticket at Will Call. And I went to the usher, and the usher just sent me down to toward the you know the, the the main floor, down toward the orchestra session, and they kept pointing me forward until um, I, I realized my seat's in the front row because I couldn't I couldn't get a date. I had that one single seat available on the front row. It was the it was the front row for the the Broadway touring production of Les Misérables, and. I had no idea what I was going to be hit with. This was not the one that you were touring in because you were yeah. watching Scooby-Doo at that time, I'm pretty sure. Um, so, but uh, I sat there in the front row and as the ensemble came out and with just glowering faces started telling me about how at the end of the day you're another day older and they're just like, they're really pretty much spitting on people in the first two rows. And I, I was just overwhelmed. And at the end, when, you know, they're all up there singing, who will join in our crusade, who will be strong and stand with us, I had this, I didn't do it, but I almost stood up and said, I will join in your crusade. <laughs> I was just completely overwhelmed with the force of this. I'd never seen anything like this. It was a, an experience that was similar to um, watching Star Wars in the theater for the first time as a six-year-old or seeing E.T. in the theater as an 11-year-old where I was literally praying to God, please don't let E.T. be dead. Please don't let E.T. E. be dead. And it was a very, as a kid, these were formative experiences for, for me in, in the cinema. And Les Mis, as a, as a much older, as a 20-year-old, uh, to be able to be laid bare like that, to be that vulnerable to an artistic experience, was also formative. And I think that's, for me, I'd seen plays, I'd been in plays, was in drama classes from 7th grade through 12th grade. I had a lot of theater background, but to experience something like that was, uh, uh, for me as a, as a young adult, very formative as well. Um, I think theater has a lot of power. I think it's a power that, that in the church we should be using, that we're not, and, and should be supporting. Um, and anyway, I wanted to just, I guess, say a few things, make a, a few observations about about theater, about what distinguishes it from other art forms, and to, to open up a conversation about what theater is, about its unique properties, and consider how is this really suited for use in the, in the church and in the kingdom. Uh, I'll start by saying theater is somewhere between, uh, in, in, in its form, as an art form, it's somewhere between um, the storyteller uh, and, and cinema. Um, the storyteller or, or the, the person delivering the homily. Uh, storytelling and homiletics has uh, the strength of that, that's the, the soul control by one person, that's hopefully strong, sinewy voice who creates the entire world for the listener. And you think about Jesus in the parables which is, is probably the best example of that. All the control by one person, all the responsibility to create a world by one person. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got cinema, which it, you know its strengths are you, you just have to shoot it one time and you've captured forever or for as long as celluloid blast that 
uh, that event, that spectacle that you can that you can capture on film. Uh, it, it, it codifies the experience. So as good as you can get that experience, you've got it for as long as you're going to show this film. Um, obviously, film has a lot of strengths, um, you know, uh, artistically, um, because you can you can put a lot of money into creating that spectacle and then capture it. Um, what uh, and of course, it's got the distribution channels. Just practically in America, we've got great distribution channels for film uh, that have made it the popular form that it is. Um, and then, so, but but it's uh, it's also it's, it's calcified. You you get that one experience every time you go back and see. Uh, Schindler's List, you're going to see the same performance again and again. I think theater in some ways really is somewhere in between the, the storyteller and cinema. Um, it is it is magnified. It's not one person having to create the world. It's usually several, two, three, four, a dozen, 33 in the case of Pacific Overtures that we produced um, back in February. It's, um, it's, you've got a number of people helping to create the world, um, but it's a, it's a fresh experience every time you go to see that show. So um, theater kind of strides somewhere in between those, uh, those two worlds. And I think maybe what's, what's most interesting and maybe what's most important about the experience of theater compared to, to cinema is that um, the story is, ma the experience is malleable. Uh, it's still being shaped and formed um, every time it's produced versus cinema, which is always uh, always going to be locked down as the same experience. Um, a few things about, yeah, a few things about kind of the nature of theater. Um, it's always communal. By definition, theater is communal. And, uh, even if you have an audience of one person, you still got, um, you still got the participation by both the uh, the actors uh, and the crew and and that uh, that audience. Um, I, as I look at uh, what's happening in the, the film world right now, um, it's really interesting. I say that because I'm not in the film world. If I were in the film world, I'd be pretty threatened right now, chiefly by Netflix and by what's going on in um, like uh, AMC and um, uh, Stars and these other networks that are producing TV that's never, it's, it's better than anything that's ever been seen before. Um, People are for a cinematic storytelling experience that people would have shelled out uh, now ten or eleven dollars for to go see in a movie theater. They're getting experiences that are as good or better in their own homes. Oh, okay, so you get great TV shows right now. But what's happening to the communal um, experience, the communal consumption of stories um, in in the cinema world? I, I, you can see it if you go go and watch a movie. It's one of the big theater chains right now. They're going to show you a little advertisement at the beginning that has like all these scenes from action flicks and romance movies and whatever up on the screen, and and then they start to shrink the image down so that eventually it looks like it's on a little computer screen. And the message here is you can't fit all that into uh, on your on your your Mac and watch all that stuff on a TV screen. The movie the movie uh, industry is, is feeling very threatened right now. Um, so what, what happens as, in particular, cinema is starting to move from a communal experience in a theater to, um, to an individual, isolated experience uh, on a TV? I don't, I think that we're going to miss some. When I was growing, when I was a kid, seeing uh, movies in the theater in uh, St. Augustine, Florida, everyone clapped at the end of the movie. Didn't have to be a good movie, even. Everyone clapped. 
people really don't, unless it's like The Hobbit or The Avengers, where people are totally charged up over this, they don't clap anymore. They experience it and they kind of walk out. I think we're, we're starting to lose that communal consumption of story. Theater is by definition always communal. Um, and uh, posting about last night's episode of The Walking Dead on Facebook and Twitter does not count as communal. It's just not the same as going to Baja Burrito after seeing a show, a movie, and then talking to your friends af uh, about that afterward. It's just, I don't think it's as satisfying, I don't think it will ever replace that. And I am gonna be watching our time, so uh, I, need to, I need to keep moving. Uh, theater, just a couple other quick things. Theater requires participation, and I, I, I would like to get Stephen just to chime in on this for a moment. Um, I keep hearing actors in particular yeah. say that every audience is different and it's a different experience. Mm -hmm. How, do you have any, any thought on that? Yeah, yeah, I, um, um, yeah, definitely. Uh, that is one of the, uh, that's a big difference between cinema and, and storytelling is that it is live, it is different every single night. And um, sorry to pick on my, my wife here, but uh, she was just doing a show and and every time I would go back and see her, she would, her performance would be different. Even, even every time, even if it would be somewhat similar, it was still always very different. And, um, you know, that depends on the audience, how the audience is, what energy they're giving you. That depends on just how, where you are in your journey of exploring the character. I mean, every night you get to recreate this life. And, um, you know, and a, and, and a good actor is, is not somebody who's going to have it all static, but someone who's going to, uh, you know, be playing, you know, their intention of the scene, which could be, which could change every night. And also, depending on what the other actor does, being in the moment, re responding to them gives this, gives a, gives a freedom of exploration. Um, and so, which is why, I mean, if you go see a show, uh, you know, you're on that night. You're seeing a different performance than what someone else would give, and somebody might give an excellent performance, but it will never be the same way again. And on film, uh, which has many great things to say about it, it's not a this isn't a competition with film, but film, you're always going to see the same thing, and you're going to watch the same thing over again. But even if you go back to a show, it's still going to be different. Different things can hit you differently at different times, and an actor can find out so much rich richness in it. And uh, that liveness of theater, even if you mess up, um, is is still something exciting because it's it's all happening right before your eyes. Your the audience is watching a risk take place right there. I've been up on stage. I don't do a lot of acting, but I'll occasionally do it. Um, my worst experience with this was actually at church um, over across the street. Uh, I was asked to do a reading or do kind of a kind of a dramatic reading sort of thing on stage while I'm the guy who's got voices in his head who are just really, you know, he's, he's really uncertain of himself. He's really feeling this, this self-doubt. And the voices on my head were two actors with mics on the front row. And what I was told was, um, here's the script. Just kind of, you know, go through it, be familiar with it. But we're going to put the words down on the screens at the bottom of the stage. And you'll just be up there with a mic on a stool and you can read through that with the, with the voices. Well, I got up on stage with a mic and there were no lines on the screens. And I did not have this memorized. And that was a really interesting experience. I'd never felt before like I was dying, but this felt like dying. Anyway, so yeah, every time you're seeing theater, there's it's a form of risk that's 
um, I think that charges up the uh, charges up the room. And it's really interesting too how you you sit there and watch twelve performances in a row of the same show, and one night a line will people will die laughing. Mm -hmm. The next night mm -hmm. there's nothing there. <laughs> Theater is really not on stage, and it's really somewhere. It's in that space between the front row of the audience and the footlights. That's where theater is created. Um, it's, it's always participatory. Um, and uh, last thing I wanted to note is I think theater is an opportunity for us. Right now in America, the last couple of years, six billion dollars has been spent to try to convince everyone of the rightness of one viewpoint and the wrongness of another. Six billion dollars. The effect that I have seen, and why this is on Facebook, is that people are more defensive than they have ever been before. They're shutting down. You start to talk to them about this subject and people will shut down. Or maybe the alternative is they're more offensive than they've ever been. I've seen people who I thought were pretty nice people say some very ugly things recently, posting some really just, there's an aggression and a is that the is that where you need to be to, is that where people need to be to have their minds changed about anything the one thing if you want to if you want to change your society you need to change the way people think that's going to lead to a change in our society people are less willing to think right now in this very politically charged environment um, they're more like me I just I just want to I just skip past the posts about politics even by people I like who I probably agree with I just I've, I am now defensive um, six billion dollars and you and you might sway a few people there politics let's put that over here on this side let's look at by contrast at theater people are coming to the theater people are more willing people are coming to you openly willing for you to tell them a story willing for you to challenge their most cherished beliefs um, as long as you're willing to be charming about it. You can coax them, you can, you can seduce them, um, and they're paying you to do it. Okay? We have an opportunity. I, I suspect there's a lot more opportunity for real heart change in that kind of environment. Even though those audiences are, are small, uh, I think there's a lot more opportunity for heart change and change of thinking in those environments than there is in the entire arena of the political consumer. So, um, yeah, and uh, it's much theater is much smaller funnels, but it's it's personal, it's local, everything in Nashville. If you live here, you know everything's about local, uh, buy local, produce local, and it's community based. And also, I think you can get a good message by a good playwright out across really a pretty broad swath of, of America within two, three years uh, if the, uh, um, it's, it's, the theaters are like the churches. They're already there. They're small, they're entrenched, and they're already there. Um, okay, so let me, let me ask this question to, um, to Wes and Stephen. And this is really a question Pete asked me. Why bother with theater when we've got the movies? And we've commented on this a little bit already, but let me just see. Wes, you've been awfully quiet over there. Um, and Wes, um, Wes actually is a screen award-winning screenwriter. <laughs> um, he he works very well in cinema and film. But why why do we need to have theater when cinema? And it's it's interesting you should say that. Uh, yes, uh, I I used to my my strongest passion was actually in film, 
and uh, award-winning screenwriter. I won one competition for a for a short screenplay, but then but then you put award-winning on everything. And, uh, yeah. um, and uh, but what was interesting about that experience for me, and there were a number of things that led to this, but. Uh, uh, part of the prize for for winning this uh, award was going out to uh, uh, the West Coast for some screenwriters conference, and I got to talk with you know producers, people in uh, in, in the biz, uh, and to give them some of my material and have them give me feedback. And the feedback I have consistently gotten uh, is, "You're too talky." Uh, it's too philosophical. It's too idea rich. You got to keep the story moving. Well, thankfully, you don't have to do that in theater. Uh, you, in fact, your currency is dialogue, language. Uh, so, really, theater gives you a much uh, better opportunity to get into rich philosophical ideas. Uh, um, conflicts of ideas that film just everyone wants to keep you know where's the next explosion let's keep the thing moving uh, and really uh, film uh, as a medium is averse to too much deep philosophical thinking uh, and in fact you know many gr uh, great minds uh, great writers uh, haven't fared terribly well in, in cinema because uh, uh, its its demands are quite different. So I think with theater, you have an opportunity to bring people into an environment uh, where where you can be more um, naked in your f philosophical uh, um, thought. You take a, a writer like Tom Stoppard, who, uh, if you're familiar with his works, and we produced Arcadia a couple of years ago, uh, it's dealing with chaos theory, uh, the, the uh, nature of knowledge, uh, just the basic, some of the, the most uh, fundamental uh, questions about humanity. And uh, this is considered Arcadia, was uh, considered by some people the greatest play of the last uh, half century. Brilliant masterwork. Uh, where's the film of Arcadia? Yeah. It's such a, a huge success. Why, why hasn't that been made I mean, into a film? A lot of Arcadia has to do with landscaping. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> they don't make movies on landscaping, I've found out. It just is not, it, they're not there. It's one of the, the towering works of humanity as a play, but it works as a play. I, I don't see, in this case, how making it into a film, which you could do, I don't see how that would at all strengthen it. In and it fact, would probably be it, what, what you can do, and you can, you can see you know taped versions of plays. It's, it's not quite the same thing as cinema. Yeah. Uh, but that's really all you could do with that material. And so here is this, uh, what for me, when I saw Arcadia in uh, London uh, back in its uh, first run, uh, Having never read it, Stoppard was a favorite writer of mine. Uh, so I went to see this new Tom Stoppard play, and it was one of the most formative experiences of my life. I mean, it was really as I, you know, uh, sort of articulated it to Greg. It was like seeing the face of God to me. Uh, just the brilliance of it uh, uh, broke through and gave me a stronger religious experience than most uh, what I would get in a church setting. Uh, it resonated with me. I've, you know, I, I couldn't get that experience going to the film. I can get different, you know, Schindler's List gives me a different sort of experience, but it doesn't um, 
doesn't appeal to the um, philosophical. The I, you know, it makes me think theater makes me think of the quote uh, from Chesterton in uh, an, uh, The Everlasting Man, one of Chesterton's uh, seminal works. Uh, but he talks about what Christianity was and what was the uniqueness of Christianity. And the environment in which Christianity arose was, in a, uh, of course, uh, at a time of um, where you had the philosophers and you had the religious uh, people, the mythology, uh, and those two things were sort of standing side by side and weren't, weren't meeting in Christianity, he says, is where philosophy and mythology meet. Um, well, to me, theater sort of serves that purpose too, because film is more mythology. It's just telling the stories. Uh, uh, it, it happened, but it, it uh, and then you can have the written word, the text, uh, whether it's in novel form or more philosophical works that just, it doesn't deal with stories, but it deals with, with ideas and the nature of reality. And I don't know that there's a better medium for attacking both of those things at the same time than theater. Mm -hmm. Stephen, what, what do you think? Yeah, um, with the question towards, you know, why when we have movies, I mean, I, I guess I would stress again the liveness of it. You know, when in theater, you're, you're basically creating a playwright, and everyone involved is creating a reality. And so everyone kind of steps into that world. And, um, and so you, you kind of experience that, that real, that, that reality happening before you and the actors that are creating, everyone that's coming together to create that. Um, so, I mean, I think I would stress, stress the experiential and that you kind of, you go on the actor's journey, you go on the playwright's journey that you're taking and you kind of live it out and you, you connect with certain characters and you uh, identify with certain characters' worldviews or maybe you disagree with, with these characters, but you kind of relate to them in, in, in this, in this um, very real way. Um, a couple of things you... Uh, that you guys said reminded me of this quote I wrote down by a famous um, director named Peter Brooks. He says, The theater cannot be an end in itself. The theater is a vehicle, a means for self-study, self-exploration, a possibility of salvation. The actor has himself as his field of work. The f this field is richer than that of a painter, richer than that of a musician, because to explore he needs to call on every aspect of himself. His hand, his eye, his ear, and his heart are what he is studying and what he is studying with. Seen this way, acting is a life's work. Uh, the actor is step-by-step step extending his knowledge of himself through the painful, ever-changing circumstances of rehearsal and the tremendous punctuation points of performance. And I love it when he gets here. He says... The actor does not hesitate to show himself exactly as he is, for he realizes that the secret of the role demands his opening himself up, disclosing his own secrets, so that the act of performance is an act of sacrifice, of sacrificing what most men prefer to hide. This sacrifice is his gift to the spectator. The actor invokes, lays bare what lies in every man. I'm going to say that again. The actor invokes, lays bare what lies in every man and what daily life covers up. Mm. This theater is holy because its purpose is holy. It has a clearly defined place in the community and it responds to a need the churches can no longer fill. Wow. Wow. 
So that idea of, of laying bare what daily life covers up, and I, I was just thinking about that. When you, when you step into theater, you know, we kind of have our daily routines, you know, we're, we're set in our ways, and yet we enter into this new world in theater, and, and hearts that are closed up can, can be opened, can be awakened. Mm-hmm. You can be challenged to think about the world in, in so many new and different ways than you did before. And so I think when people leave plays and musicals, a lot of times... They never forget that experience because they leave lighter. They leave hmm. knowing that life has more meaning than, than they thought before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think so much of that has to do with the liveness and, and the reality that's happening before them. The actor who is actually experiencing these emotions and taking you on the journey um, is, is, like I said, life-changing for people. And uh, just to continue along with that and uh, something that you said earlier greg you know the difference in going into a movie theater and a uh, play theater is so different when you go into the movie theater you got the what the 20 at 20 or whatever yeah the 20 uh, yeah <laughs> you got the, the commercials blaring at you you got your tub of popcorn you got your coat you don't do that when you go into a theater it is like entering a sacred space mm-hmm. uh and so i think you're much more uh, and, and part of that is because you have live performers up there where you can't, you know, it would be uh, rude to, to be, you know, uh, rambunctious in that environment. So it, get, it, it provides, um, it, just by its very nature, it, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it sort of provides a, a, a platform for more powerful experience. Mm-hmm. It is, there's a, and, and Stephen, when you said... Um, vulnerability and sacrifice when I think of um, where uh, my Christian life has has led me um, words like vulnerability and sacrifice are appealing to me that sounds like that sounds like um, church it sounds like Christianity it sounds like the kind of spiritual family that that I want to be part of um, and and one uh, another thing that we wanted to address that I really wanted to um, let Wes discuss is the parallels between theater and our and our Christian theology. Um, theater theater as incarnation. And when I think about especially the words of um, of uh, opening up the Gospel of John and the Word became flesh. You know, Wes mentioned that the dialogue is really the strength of theater, whereas in film, it really needs to be, what are you seeing? What are you looking at? What's the action? What's the, it's almost like words are, are at least uh, through a lot of, of films, words are um, um, seasoning rather than the meat of, uh, of that particular art form. Um, and, and I think of, in a way, as theater as being, you know, the words become flesh. The actors get up and, and take a script written by one, maybe two people, and, and uh, incarnate that experience for us. So, it, what you know, some thoughts on how theater works with um, our kind of the, the yeah. Christian theology. Well, and uh, I'm very likely to just start espousing some pet peeves and about uh, theater. So please stop me if I start venting too much. Are you, your, your pet peeves are the are the the wisdom of. <laughs> but but I think uh, just to pull it back for a minute, the uh, the problem when we talk about these these things 
uh, is what we're talking about is great theater, and so many people have been burned by bad theater, and I'm, I'm one of them. Uh, I dread going to the theater because most of the experiences are so dreadful. I mean, really, uh, as bad as bad movies can be, I think bad theater is far worse. It's, far worse. it's, yeah. it's more miserable, and you just you, you're sitting there in in your seat, and you just want to scream, you just want to jump up on stage and say, "I could improvise something better than what you're giving." I've me. actually seen him do that. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. And and part of the part of the problem is we we don't recognize this often, but audience members are are uh, master critics of reality because we live in it every day. And uh, theater often presents a very pale imitation of reality. You think about sets, and they just put up a few flats and throw on one coat of paint, and it's like, this looks like crap. Um, and, uh, and, and you have, I mean, you know how to compare that to the life you leave, and this looks like, you know, nothing. No home I've ever been in looks, looks this bad. Um, and so... The problem is there is a lot of theorizing uh, about theater or um, self-indulgence uh, with theater artists who aren't making these sacrifices and realizing to do even halfway decent theater uh, from, from production standards to acting standards is very difficult. It takes a lot of work and you have to have a lot of uh, talent to be able to do it. And that's where you get into the incarnation idea. Uh, where in uh, every element of it, the staging, the way a per an actor looks, you know, that we have people come in to audition for us who may be terrifically talented as actors, but if they don't look like the part needs to look, you can't cast them because that delivers a message just by the way, uh, whatever their physique is, their height. Um, you know, I'm an actor too, and I would love to play uh, a number of roles that, quite frankly, you know, it's just going to look absurd. Uh, and I was the tallest Harold Hill that probably ever set foot. Yes. If I audition for Legend of Sleepy Hollow, I've got a pretty good shot of getting Ichabod Crane, but uh, I've, I've played all those roles. I've played the Scarecrow. Uh, but, but whatever, uh, you know, the way you look, and you guys know this as actors, I mean, that, that determines what you're going to be eligible for as an actor, and you're not going to audition for King Lear, is my guess, uh, you know, for the role of King Lear. Um, and so when people, when theater artists neglect those things, don't have the proper respect for the incarnation, uh, you get bad theater. Uh, and that's on every level from production values, making sure that uh, you're not just, you know, costumes, people, you know, how many times have you seen theater and it's everyone's dressed in black and they're not really using props. and. Uh, there's a place for that, but oftentimes uh, it's not for a mainstream audience. And as, yeah. a, as, as theater artists, you have to be uh, understand audience expectations, uh, and you also you, you have to respect that uh, it's going to take a lot of work even to, you know, to do something halfway decent. Yeah. You have to respect 
respect the form. And I, Stephen will talk about this more in his, in his section. But I, I, I relate it back to in college, um, Wes and I knew a, a young man who had written a science fiction story. And it was about a couple of, a couple of um, college age kids, uh, boy and girl, who found some time, tra who, whose nutty professor friend had invented a time travel device. And they went back to like 1770s and were meeting Ben Franklin and all this stuff. And they fell in love and whatever. And, and they, you know, before they go on their time travel journey, they, they prayed with the, this nutty professor character. And, and it was terrible. It was a really bad story. And even inside the story, he says, the, one of the characters says, wait, this is kind of like a crazy mashup of Back to the Future and Justice League of America. Like he's admitting just how derivative this is. And at the end, I'm like, well, you know, well, to this, you know, the, the kid, the young man asked me how I liked the story. Um, did I have any thoughts on it? I'm like, well, it's, it, is, it is very similar to some things that we've already seen, Back to the Future, Justice League, that time travel thing. And he, and he says, yes, but the characters are Christians. And I'm like, you know, dude, that's not going to sell anybody. That will, first, you're going to turn most people away as soon as they hear that. Second, it doesn't, you know, just because we're coming at this as part of our our calling, our holy mission that we feel God has given us, you've got to understand where you are in, in your talent, in your skill level, with your experience. And being, being Christians or doing this in a church is not going to make up for anything. In fact, it's a big barrier for the rest of the world to seeing your work because they just know church theater is bad theater. And it's coming at you with, a, with an altar call ending. Um, it's it, they know you've got an agenda to I don't I really don't like agenda theater I don't like agenda theater a lot when it's when it's on uh, whether it's left-leaning or right-leaning whether it's religious or anti-religious if it's got a um, if it's if it's just trying to compel you of a specific point at the end it's 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 doing usually a disservice to real to the characters in the story. And what we want to see is a story of humanity to, um, I mean, this is what I think what Peter Brooks is talking about in that quote, is to yeah, lay bare with the human experience. Now, Wes, I, you've, I know you have some thoughts on what does it mean, what is Christian theater? What does that, is there Christian theater? Should there be, what, what does that mean? Yeah, and it's that's a question I'm not prepared to answer, uh, <laughs> even though I gave you that question to ask me. Uh, <laughs> because really, there's no easy answer for it. It's uh, you know I think the best way the best way we can look at it as Christians is to do the most you know sort of honest approach to telling stories as we possibly can and let let it go wherever it goes. Uh, but I will say that what is usually demanded when you uh, uh, when people talk about this and what they want to see uh, produced as Christian uh, theater or Christian film, typically people are far more sophisticated in the way Christians are far more sophisticated in the way that they will uh, study <laughs> scripture than they do theater or film. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and the issue here is that they want to see a story 
follow the entire scope of the Bible, really. Or the five-step plan of salvation yes. if you're Church of Christ, like me. You know, that was... <laughs> they don't mind seeing the fall as long as you see the salvation, the victory yeah. at the end. There's got to be some conversion that has to exist. Okay, that's great. And there are many great stories like Les Miserables, which has that full scope. Uh, but if you take individual bo uh, books from the Bible, not all of them do that. You know, where is the, the theatrical equivalent of Ecclesiastes? Uh, maybe it's waiting for Godot, maybe you know? So. <laughs> yeah. And is that, is that not just as justified? Um, and it's understanding context. What is this particular play trying to react to? Maybe it doesn't have a final answer, but at least it's challenging uh, certain paradigms already in the culture. Um, some of the things that I would list as the most powerful, uh, spirit, at least spiritual plays to me, aren't written by Christians. Um, one of my favorite plays is Equus, which is a, a very dark and disturbing play. But it's uh, written by you know, Peter Schaefer, who at least is, is wrestling with these issues. And one of the reasons I love Equus is it's a slap in the face of sort of fundamentalist, scientific, uh, you know, a very square, straight answers to the world. And you've got this psychologist who uh, is sh his his um, his worldview is completely shaken by this boy who's having these. Well, he blinded six horses, but he had these strange, uh, this spiritual experience uh, in worshiping these horses. I, I'm it's not, kind of a strange yeah, story. Not doing justice to it. You gotta uh, see it. Yeah, yeah, she right. did. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Point. Uh, but the. Uh, but the, what, what, the, what the psychologist wrestles with is, you know, I can cure this boy. I can, take a, I can take away his madness, but it's also going to be taking away this religious ecstasy that I don't have, and I would die just to have one moment of what this kid experiences. So uh, there are some, some, you know, some dark themes running through that. And yet, when, when I first read that play and have seen it subsequently, I mean, it's really one of the most powerful sp spiritual plays that I can think mm -hmm. of, not written by a Christian. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you said something uh, to me uh, that I thought was really interesting about that, the idea of, of the, our stories, stories told by Christians ending on a positive note. They can be a note of hope but a note of certainty? Right. Does that really map to our experience, to our Christian experience? Yeah. To, to what degree does it? I mean, so... Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's important for me most to, uh, to end on an upbeat note uh, in film or theater narrative. Uh, to me, the ones that resonate the most strongly are ones based on hope, not certainty. Is uh, because their doubt. You know, we we all live in a, a certain degrees of doubt, and so that's what what uh, correlates with our experience of the world. And to come at it with too much absolute certainty just rings false. It rings untrue, yeah. and, and isn't truth what we're going for in art? The truth of what do we? What is the human experience? And then what is the, the human experience in light of what we see in the, in, in the story of Christ and what we really believe actually did happen? 
and we're trying to, you know, we spent 2,000 years grappling with the life of, of one man and how it changed the lives of his followers and how they changed the entire world. Um, we're, we're in search for the truth, but human experience, at least for, for, for me, doesn't, doesn't seem to be very simple. Right, and and I think you know Christians aren't the only ones to blame for this. Uh, even back to the originators, the the Greeks, uh, they had what was called Deus ex machina, where the gods come in and fix everything. Yeah. Uh, we've just you know it's not terribly satisfying storytelling to us now. And it, if you you know change Zeus into Yahweh, it doesn't get much better. No, you know, no, it doesn't. For more information regarding the songs, writers, and artists featured here, please visit rabbitroom.com. Rabbit Room music composed and performed by Ben Shive.